Welcome back to the Read Connected podcast. At different points of our life, we may reflect upon what our strengths and areas for growth are, or perhaps they've been pointed out for us by somebody else. One way to discern specific cognitive, emotional, and learning-based characteristics that can impact behavior, performance, and development is through a neuropsychological evaluation. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Beth Jersky and Dr. Jason Fogler to unpack a little bit more about what a neuropsychological evaluation is, and what that process is, and what it might not be able to provide. back again with Dr. Beth Jersky and Dr. Jason Fogler to talk about a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, but often comes about with many questions from folks that have either heard this term from their educators or teachers that they've worked with or have just heard about it around or might have been recommended to take a neuropsychological assessment. Today, we're going to tackle the big questions of neuropsychological assessments, what it is and what it isn't. We're going to try our best to be concise. And if there's any additional questions that you have after this episode, feel free to leave some questions in the comments or shoot us an email. And we're happy to come back on again and answer any questions that you might have. So as we get started, I'm curious about how you describe what a neuropsych assessment is? What's your best elevator pitch to describe what that process and what this tool is? Thanks, Alexis. And good to be back with you, by the way. It's really fun talking with you. Yeah, let's talk about the what it is. The what it isn't, I think, is going to get us going and get your audience going. The what it is, real simply, is it's trying to create a picture of how you function in data. That is it. That is all it should ever be. And so, you know, we don't have an x-ray for how you think, and we don't have an MRI for your feelings. So we give all of these questionnaires and tasks and have you put blocks together and tell us what words mean so that we get a map in numbers of what are you strong at? What are you not so strong at? Do you have feelings that maybe get into a clinical domain that we need to really look at and help you with? But ultimately, that data map gives us ideas about what might be helpful to you at home, at school, and in community. We'll talk a little bit about what it's not. You know, it's not a prescription to a school about where a kid should be placed. It's a map for where are they likely to succeed, where are they likely to not, And based on that, what interventions might we be able to put through? I'm going to hand things off to Beth. And thank you, Alexis, for having me. And I appreciate the opportunity. I think, you know, similar to Jason, how I describe it to parents, it could be called neuropsych testing, neuropsych assessment, a neuropsych evaluation. And basically what that is, is an in-depth assessment of, of skills and abilities kind of linked to brain functioning. You know, we always try to link it back to brain functioning if we can sometimes, it's hard to hypothesize that, but you know, we look at a variety of different brain functions, attention, problem solving, memory, language, how you're able to kind of view the world and how you're able to kind of take in information and how quickly you can put information out there again. And so we're looking at a lot of different constructs through tests that have been around, some of them for over 100 years. Some of them are newer, oftentimes they've been updated, but a lot of these tests have been around for a very long time. And they have been tested with some cases, thousands and thousands and thousands of children. And so we kind of have an idea of where 
your child, if you're coming in for testing, might be on that continuum in terms of where they are related to other children their age and kind of are they at expectations in terms of how they're developing. And we also look at them compared to um, themselves. So again, to Jason's point, we're looking at strengths and we're looking at weaknesses. And I tell families, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. You know what you might find hard, I might find easy and vice versa. And I tell kids, always just try your best at these tests because it is several hours long, oftentimes. You know, sometimes we break it up into a day, two days, three days. But I tend to kind of test starting in the morning and usually I'll go past lunch uh, when I'm when I'm working with somebody. So it's a, a good sized day, similar to a school day. And some of the tests are definitely more academic feeling. And some are more on the computer and some are more paper and pencil. And I have people draw things and like what Jason has put together blocks. And, and so there's a lot of different things that we look at with these assessments to the point of getting data and comparing them to themselves and them to other kids. That was great. I really appreciate both of your perspectives and sharing what a neuropsych assessment is because there's a lot of families that I speak to and in the educational community who will say, you know, my teacher or the school system has recommended I go through this series of testing. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? So I think another good question that I'm curious about your perspective on is, you know, why would somebody want to get this type of assessment or why would somebody ask a family to have a neuropsychological assessment done? I can start this time and then I'll pass it to Jason. I think there's a variety of reasons. Sometimes the question is for a diagnosis. So sometimes families may come in or teachers may say, it looks like your child might not be where we'd expect them to be in certain domains academically. So do they have a a specific learning disability? It may be that they're behaving in the classroom in a way that may be a little more disruptive. So so they're looking at emotional behavioral functioning. So it, it could be a variety of reasons why somebody might be referred to come in. And sometimes, you know, the end result is a diagnosis. It's not always necessarily a diagnosis either. But what we can say is what we always have are recommendations based off our impressions that are going to help support the child, you know, utilize their strengths and bolster their weaknesses. And we always try to come up with recommendations, maybe within the school setting and the home setting, maybe in a therapeutic setting. To Jason's point, we're not prescriptive. We don't tell schools you have to do this. But When I'm writing, I try to always, again, bring it back to the data. Based off of how they performed in this domain, it would be great if at school they could do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so I think sometimes the question is a diagnosis. Sometimes it's just to kind of see how they're functioning. Yeah. And and Beth, you mentioned writing. When you're writing, what is that process like? Is that something that the families will get to bring with them and to share with others? So that's a great, great point too, Alexis. So yes, our end product is always a report, right? And so usually what it looks like is when you come in and you are scheduled for an assessment, I'll have an intake with parents, maybe parents and children, and I will kind of ask developmental history, and then I'll have a day of testing. And then after the day of testing, sometimes several weeks later, we'll have a feedback session, at which point I'll go over what the findings were. And that's always going to be followed up with a report that kind of talks about all the data, talks about our impressions, our summary, our recommendations, all the things that we went through in the feedback, but it's in a written document. So at at the end of the day, parents will have a written report with all this information in it. Thanks for that clarification. I appreciate that. I just want to touch back on something Beth said earlier. And to your question, Alex, you know, 
why get this? I think what makes it tricky to do neuropsych testing in a pediatric domain is neuropsych testing was originally designed to assess for a change in functioning after a stroke or a dementia or a head injury. And it's one thing to start assessing, I had a stroke, what's my language like now? To assess a child who's growing up divergently. If you see what I'm saying, you know, it's one thing to come into the world, you know, typically functioning as much as we know, and something happens to you. The process of child neuropsychology is we're seeing what you're growing into. And I think that can make it tricky for parents because kids can grow into and out of all sorts of things so that it's very, very difficult to say the testing is the final word on somebody. And in fact, we recommend testing every two to three years, just like having a well child check. You should be doing a pediatric neuropsych check roughly in these intervals because nothing changes the brain like you know the hormones of adolescence, much less whatever kind of stress or Lyme disease or all the things we can stumble across through our lives. But to circle back, right, that report that best describing that paper trail if it's done well, creates a really wonderful blueprint for how we might proceed with planning, treatment, and education for someone's you know, potentially life, if there are a lot of reports, but certainly in that one-year period, if you do that testing right then and there. That's a really great segue into the, the next question I have that I hear so often from families and parents, just trying to navigate how to find the right match for who to assign this very important task of doing a neuropsychological assessment with. And often, especially these times right now, we're currently in 2022, coming off of COVID where a lot of offices were closed and now we're starting to open back up again to have these assessments done. And there's long wait lists and sometimes it's difficult to navigate if insurance is applicable and, you know, what to do in this process and how to really find the right fit for what your needs are. So I'm curious if you both have any suggestions or any ideas to share with the audience about that. You know, Alexis, no, no doubt it's a service desert right now. And not all assessors take insurance, so it can be a very expensive endeavor. So your question is is right on point. You know, why should I potentially stay on this wait list or pay this much money for this very kind of cumbersome endeavor. You know, like Beth is saying, could be, you know, you're basically taking a day out of your life and then there's the feedback and then there's all the meetings with schools and clinicians that might come, et cetera, et cetera. Beth has some really good thoughts about there are certain conditions where finding the right person is critical. You know, the assessment of autism spectrum disorder, there are certain tests that need to be done. And for that reason, there might need to be some vetting of your particular assessor and what tests do you do. But Beth's got some great thoughts about, you know, there are some problems where you really need a particular person. And yeah, Beth, I'd love if you shared it with folks. Yeah, I would say sometimes there are websites like we have in Massachusetts, AANE, which is a very large group, the Asperger's and Autism Network used to be a network of New England. And they actually have a listing of diagnosticians that have kind of quasi been vetted. So, you know, for a question of autism, that might be one place a family might start to see, you know, what are the diagnosticians? What ages do they see? I think 
talking with pediatricians, talking with other families where you might question a certain diagnosis. If you know of a family where that child has a diagnosis, you could always ask kind of word of mouth is very big in terms of of looking for providers. I work in an outpatient setting, but there's people that work in a hospital-based setting. So if you are within a hospital-based setting already, trying to find out, you know, if you're at Boston Children's or Mass General, like, do they have a service there where you can do an evaluation? Again, I think you can always call in your insurance providers. Jason is correct. There are some in-network providers where the bulk will be covered by insurance. There's out-of-network providers. But due to some recent laws that are supporting families, all providers, both out-of-network as well as in-network, meaning that they take your insurance or they might not take your insurance, are now required to provide estimates, good faith estimates to all families. And what I recommend to people is if you want to go with an out-of-network provider, you can always get that estimate and you can always call your insurance and find out how much they'll reimburse for any kind of treatment or testing. So to Jason's point, there are you know sometimes some conditions where it's really important to try to find specialists who really are able to see that patient population every day have been specially trained in these kind of measures. Sometimes they're harder to find. I hate to say just like Google search stuff because I think that that's not well vetted, but sometimes it'll give you a little little insight into some of the places, the bigger places or the smaller places that might do that. There's no really great place to go, I don't think, and say, here are all the neuropsychologists in the state. There, there's some of those out there, but those are very kind of hard to find. You know, probably the best two questions you could ask maybe are, how many kids or people have you assessed with this concern? And can you tell me a little bit about the tests you might use to figure that out? And you should ideally hear a pretty cogent answer. For instance, you know, autism spectrum disorder, a critical tool is something called the ADOS, which probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with. The Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule 2, it's now in its second edition, something like the ADIR. You should be able to have an assessor at least give you sort of a menu of this is what I do and how I look into it. I might be wary of someone who gives you something a little more evasive or, you know, I like to get to know the kid first. Testing is a pretty systematic and scientific endeavor, and you should be able to have a cogent conversation with someone who knows the tools of the trade. It's sort of an art, too, to be able to stitch together all the data, the information, the observation and narratives that are collected throughout the time that you're working with a family and and an individual So I think it's really important to make sure you're collecting enough information to share with the practitioner that you're going to be working with and also to hear their perspective that they're not going to just go through the same battery that they would with anybody else to really think carefully, as Jason mentioned, about what are some of the assessments that you might want to use to gain more information about this specific question that we have about our child or ourselves, the functioning that we're noticing that might be getting in the way or might not seem developmentally appropriate at this point in time. And I would say we also, you know, when we're doing these assessments, we will oftentimes get collateral information from other people, other providers. So we'll talk to or send, you know, rating scales to schools and to teachers. I'll talk with, obviously, with appropriate kind of releases, I'll talk to outpatient therapists of children. We always kind of talk with the primary caretakers. But I think, you know, there's a lot of different collaterals that we get to try to get a full picture of that child. And I mean, there are times, too, when schools 
can also do some of these tests. I'll see people come in where schools have done some of the testing and they'll need me to kind of augment that maybe for a diagnosis or for additional recommendations. But schools oftentimes will support some of the testing done within their home. You know, when you say art, Alexis, um, and I was just teaching a class to some medical students the other day on this. So there is the art of synthesizing data and observations and collateral narratives into a coherent diagnostic or functional picture. Now, two assessors might come to a different conclusion but you should see the same dots getting connected in the data and the narratives, right? You know, art, it's not uh, making something up out of whole cloth. The data needs to hang together. Now, because different diagnostic presentations can produce similar test results, there is some room for difference of opinion. But, uh, you know, as I was saying to the medical students, if I'm reading a report, I need to see how the person got there. Whether or not I agree with it, I need to see a clear line between the data points for me to be able to say, you know, yeah, this is an on-point report. I might agree to disagree on certain things, but it can't feel like we're in different planets, right? If someone is, um, let's say their cognitive functioning is very, very, very low, we can't be talking about gifted and talented programs. That's one of many different ways. And that's a very simplistic example, but we should be able to come to similar, if not the same conclusion. And that's where I guess I would say, yes, you have a point about art. You have a point about subjectivity. Going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, when deciding upon going through the process of having this type of assessment completed, you know, many families might be fearful or worried about a potential stigma that might come from it or what that might mean for moving forward. What advice would you share as individuals who do this type of testing all the time about the process and what can often be gleaned from it, how it might impact an individual's life moving forward after they have gone through the assessments, they've had the feedback, and they understand a little bit more about how their cognitive and behavioral functioning is impacting their day-to-day. So we lost Larry Seidman far too soon, and he was a, a wonderful mentor to Beth and I, Beth even more so. He wrote a wonderful chapter that talked about the gift of understanding that comes with a good neuropsych assessment and the ability to know yourself a little better and be able to quantify these sort of existential struggles you've been having, right? Why has school been so hard for me? Or why do I get so sad so often? A report done well, delivered sensitively in a feedback session, should give the gift of self-understanding or understanding of one's child that then hopefully, this is certainly something I aspire to, increases trust and buy-in into whatever recommendations I might have about treatment and educational planning. That's the best way I can put it if we're doing our jobs well. And Beth, I'd love to hear you add to this. We've had some great conversations about this. You know, I think 
especially if the recommendations are geared towards greater supports and bolstering strengths and weaknesses within a classroom or within home, you know, again, the hope is that it supports the child, the whole child in many different kinds of settings and multiple settings. So not necessarily just one setting, but it can have a really profound impact in multiple settings, but in one setting too. So, you know, if a child is eligible for an IEP and they're not able to access the curriculum, which again, we don't make that determination in terms of their accessing the curriculum. But if, if school, based off our report, sees that they have a diagnosis that kind of meets that first criteria for an IEP and there's support for them needing greater services, getting a child set up with that can be really instrumental in how they continue on in school and how much they want to be a good learner. I've seen kids come in who have specific learning disabilities in reading or dyslexia who are in the third or fourth grade who realize that they're struggling, who realize that they're behind their peers and have self-esteem issues and, you know, a little writing support can really go a long way. And we know that there are really great curriculums out there to support specific learning disabilities. And so I think that in this particular case changed pretty much everything. They, They became less anxious, their mood improved, they didn't feel like they were stupid. They realized that this was just an area that they needed very specific support with and got, and it really turned things around for them, whereas the trajectory was kind of sad before. So I think it can have pretty profound impacts in terms of certain recommendations or certain kind of recommending certain therapies or recommending certain enrichment programs or camps or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can go. And Jason and Alexis, you and I talk about this all the time, different recommendations, and we're always kind of querying one another about if you've heard of specialty camps or special programs for different individuals, because the goal really is to tailor these recommendations to this child and not have it be this kind of cookie cutter type of thing. We really spend a lot of time thinking about this individual and how we can best help that individual. And the recommendations should definitely support all the data that Jason's talking about and be able to kind of link back to that too. And I'll be the first to say we could probably do our jobs better with that. You know, a common complaint of teachers is our recommendations aren't actionable enough for the school setting. They don't give enough guidance. Um, They're too sort of aspirational or pie in the sky. And, you know, I, I think we've got some work to do on that front. And I would wholeheartedly underscore the importance of tailoring and individualization. You know, Beth and I both teach up and coming assessors. And I think particularly, you know, in addition to administering the test right, we try to hammer down on that it's for this kid, not for the population of all people with learning disabilities. Yeah, I frequently will talk to families and educators alike to help them to understand that sometimes there's just a mismatch with the individual in the environment, too, where things aren't coming together as smoothly as we may hope. And sometimes gleaning more information from a neuropsych helps us to better understand what really is necessary and what would be most helpful to support these kids in and outside of school. So uh, another question that I have and I frequently hear from families is that they've brought their child to a pediatrician and they're describing some of the observations of behaviors and things that are coming up and the pediatrician will say, oh, it sounds like they have ADHD. And they might give you some rating scales and some other forms to fill out to gather more information. And then they might still be asked to do a neuropsych assessment. What would be the value of 
having information from both the pediatrician and a neuropsych evaluation in a, in a case like this where ADHD has been, quote unquote, diagnosed by a pediatrician? You know, Alexis, where it matters is ADHD co-occurs 60% or more of the time with other things. So much so the new guidelines came out at the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 for this entity called complex ADHD. ADHD co-occurring with learning disabilities, other neurodevelopmental conditions, other health conditions, and other psychiatric conditions. To answer your question, if there is any concern that one of these other conditions might be on board, that's the value in getting the neuropsych. If all parties agree that ADHD is the only issue, there's nothing else going on, there's no harm in just you know passing go and trying a prescription to see if it helps. Because stimulant medications are powerfully effective for simple ADHD, which we're increasingly learning is you know a minority of the group of kids who have it, right? That's 40%. But it's a fair question from parents. And that's what I would ask them, you know, is there any possibility there's something else going on? In which case, there's no better way to suss it out than neuropsych test. I was going to say in the classroom environment, just having a diagnosis of ADHD might lend the teacher with some idea of what to do in a situation that best supports that student. But if there is a complexity and other things going on, there might be other interventions that might be more supportive and helpful, which hopefully are designed proactively from the beginning in a universally designed learning environment. However, it's not always the case. So we need to be a little bit more clear about what we're doing and what we're supporting and how to get there. And and I would say that probably would be the case even outside of ADHD, right? If we're seeing something come up, it might not just be one thing. And we want to be able to get into the weeds a little bit to find out where there are some weaknesses that maybe we didn't recognize or notice before we can't see just observationally. Another question that folks might have is, who does a neuropsychological assessment? Can anybody do these kinds of tests? Will you get the same kind of information regardless of who you go to? Well, technically, a neuropsychologist is somebody who has had a very specific formal training in kind of this brain behavior relationships in their graduate studies and in their clinical work. Um, They have a clinical internship that's devoted to neuropsychology. And then there are certain guidelines that would say that we have to have two years of a formal training after we've already graduated, in addition to the work that we've already done. So there's very specific guidelines called the Houston guidelines. We don't need to get into it, but they talk very specifically about what it means to call yourself and hang a shingle that says, I am a neuropsychologist. Having said that, I know a lot of people who are not technically neuropsychologists, who are excellent assessors and testers, and who are just as good as people who've had this, you know, this formal training. But technically, that's what a neuropsychologist is. People can be assessors. Oftentimes, again, there's a lot of training inherent in their graduate program and their postgraduate work. But it's really considered kind of at the level of a graduate degree, either like a PhD or a PsyD um, in psychology, and a specialized training in neuropsychology is kind of what makes that stand apart from somebody who might, say, just do therapy as part of their clinical work. So, and, and I'll go on record to say I am a clinical psychologist who received some wonderful training from neuropsychologists. But I don't meet Houston guidelines criteria. 
And, you know, I, I will let parents and teachers know that should they ask, you know, what are your bona fides? In broad strokes, I guess here's what I might say. There are school psychologists who do some really great focused assessment of cognition and academic skills. Now, sometimes you could have a neuropsychologist employed by the school who can also dig into things that are the purview of neuropsychologists, memory, executive functioning, the finer points of motor functioning, for instance. I would say there's a certain question-specific quality to this. And if there's really wondering about diagnosis, that's the purview of clinical psychologists and clinical neuropsychologists. But if we're wondering about something like, how's this kid's reading, that might be a more democratic endeavor. To go the school route. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Jason and I have spoken before about how schools have a wealth of knowledge at their fingertips that we might not. You know, we do an intake. It's a pretty comprehensive intake. We have a lot of paperwork. I have a lot of paperwork that people fill out for me. But, you know, I'm not living and breathing the environment the same way some of these school psychologists might be. And they might have a relationship with a child already, having seen them in the, in the school environment, whereas I'm oftentimes meeting them for the first time. So I would I would definitely agree. There's definitely a place for some work that can be done in the school setting. And like I said, sometimes I'll have people who have had some of the academic and maybe cognitive testing done at school, and then they'll come to me for more of the nuanced memory, language, fine motor to kind of add to the total picture. And I would also say, to add to your point about training, you can get what's called board certified in psychology and in clinical neuropsychology, which basically means that you've taken exams, you've passed certain bars, you've sent materials to people who grade them and have assessed that this means that you're at the level of being board certified. I would say that within our field, that's becoming something that's happening more and more often, that people are becoming board certified. I think when Jason and I were in school, 20 odd years ago, that was probably less of something that people pursued. And now it is something that people are pursuing more. Again, that means that people have just been vetted a little bit more within that particular realm. So that could also be something. I don't say you have to go to a board certified clinical neuropsychologist. I am not a board certified clinical neuropsychologist, and I consider myself to have some pretty good skills. But it is another mechanism for trying to determine whether somebody maybe have the training that you're looking for as, as a parent. I would say that both of you are incredibly skilled and take great care in making sure that you're analyzing the data that's collected in a way that it's helpful and informative to the families and the individuals you're working with, which I greatly appreciate. As someone who has not been trained specifically in neuropsychology, but I have done a lot of reading and research and have been involved in a lot of the processes with families and neuropsychologists to learn as much as I can to better translate some of this information into the classroom and into the homes of the families that I work with, which is a great benefit and privilege that I've had in my own training too. But one other question that just came up thinking about the environment and the space that this information is collected. Oftentimes, a, an individual will come in to the office or into the hospital, and sometimes it might feel like a sterile environment. How do we tease apart the fact that this is information that's being collected in this space, in this specific point in time, 
and relate it to or generalize outside of these moments, right? This is the information that we collected during the neuropsych assessment. And are the individuals going to perform the same and maybe have the same kind of outcomes outside of that environment? What would you say to a family or an individual asking a little bit about that? Very briefly, fair criticism, right? And a lot of teachers take us to task for that. You're seeing them one-on-one, quiet room, optimal conditions. Under ideal scenarios, we're partnering with someone who's doing that in-class observation and connecting the dots and seeing how generalizable it is. The other piece, one of the advantages of testing a child over the course of a day is that you are able to see how do they respond to different kinds of tasks. What's their frustration tolerance? What does it take to get them back online? With a level of attention that a classroom teacher may not be able to deploy. I would say we provide a micro to a teacher's macro, and the optimal scenario is if both come together. What happens a lot, classic scenario, a parent has a really contentious relationship with the school, and they want us to be sort of the second opinion, the hammer, the, you know, you school need to da-da-da, and that's only giving one side of the story. Um, But that happens a lot, right? And then the school will fairly say, how do we know these findings are generalizable to the classroom? You didn't talk to any of us. Beth and I will be the first to say when we're talking to our students, you know, we've got to get some collateral information. We've got to talk to teachers. We have to see how well our data generalizes to be able to make the points we're making. That in no way effaces the value of robustly normed standardized testing and being able to answer a question. But it's a fair criticism we need to address just the same. To that point, too, what I'll say to parents is, you know, what Jason is saying, very sterile, not a lot of distractions, no other children running around. And, you know, I'm sitting across from them, asking them questions, waiting for responses. Oftentimes, I'm not teaching them anything. I'm not like an educator where I'm expecting them to learn information. I'm waiting for them to respond to me and kind of doing this give and take, which, again, is, is very, very different than the learning environment. 100%. And getting the collaterals is, is huge. And doing classroom observations is huge. And what I'll also say is if a kiddo comes in and, and if we're considering this optimal-ish conditions, right, where it's just one-on-one, no other distractions, blank, you know, walls, no artwork up there, just me and this child... And I'm still noticing a lot of symptoms. I'm still noticing fidgeting, not being able to be in their chair, not being able to sit still. And I could say, wow, under optimal circumstances, I'm seeing how some of this is getting in the way of our testing. I can only imagine what it's like in a classroom setting when there's 100 other kids around and the teacher's trying to teach something. Now, that doesn't mean that if they're with me and they sit perfectly quiet and perfectly still for six hours, that I'm not going to be able to make some observations. But if they're with me and I'm seeing a lot of the same kind of symptoms that are being reported in the classroom, I sometimes can say, if I'm seeing it to a small portion, it's amplified in the classroom setting. And that's why going and getting classroom observations is, is huge. And asking teachers and asking parents and, and all of that and getting as much information as you can is huge. But I will say, again, in terms of setting expectations, the last thing, maybe Jason will speak to this and I know we, we're out of time, but 
you know, oftentimes there's very long wait lists to get in to get these assessments done. And then they come in and then, then you tell them, okay, now we're going to test them. And now it'll be a couple of weeks before we do the feedback. And then it'll be a couple more weeks until you get the report. Usually, you know, there's a round of where I work, maybe like a six week turnaround from the time that the intake's done to testing, to the feedback, to the report being done. And so they've waited a long time. And I think making sure that parents kind of understand what the assessment is and what it isn't is important. Because I think people are like, I've waited on this wait list for a year or six months or whatever. And now I've waited another, since the process, since I met you, I'm waiting another six to eight weeks. This is going to be my golden ticket to X, Y, and Z, whatever that might be. That's why I like this podcast. I think it kind of helps explain things a little bit more and what it is. And I would love to have another conversation about what it is and what it isn't. And again, I tell parents, I can make recommendations for the school. School doesn't have to listen to me. I try to frame it in a way that the recommendations are set and grounded in data so that, you know, hopefully the school can take that into consideration. But it's true. We have heard teachers say these are aspirational. You're not really giving us the the same kind of roadmap. You need to tighten up these recommendations. So I think, you know, we're working on that. But I think, again, what it is and what it isn't is important for families to better understand. And I think that this is something that tells more about what it is. And maybe another point, too, we can talk about what it isn't. I think that will be a great part, too. Awesome. Really appreciate your insight and expertise. This conversation has been incredibly helpful. I'm sure there will be plenty more because there's so much more we can talk about around this subject. But thank you so much for starting us off and providing some support and some guidance around this neuropsychological assessment process for families and listeners. So thank you so much. And I really appreciate our time together as always. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas and is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you're in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but is not intended to represent the opinions of those we work with or are affiliated with. The Reed Connected podcast is hosted by Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed, is produced by Lauren Biza, our communications and marketing coordinator is Colin Faley, and original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Read Connected podcast will be releasing a new episode every two weeks each season. So please subscribe for updates and notifications. And you can follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast and Twitter at Read Connected. R-E-I-D Connected. We're grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meantime, be curious, be open, be well. Be well.